Okay, you guys, well, let me pray one more time, if you don't mind, and uh, we'll get started with our study today, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this glorious day. I just feel compelled to thank you and to uh, bless your name, and, and, and Father, I'm so grateful that you have gathered your people today, and we just pray for a wonderful uh, service today and, and worship. Father, we pray that our hearts would be lifted up to you, that you would encourage us and lift our, our heads up, and Father, that you would remind us of our of our privileged state and how highly uh, favored we are in your sight. So we thank you for the privileges and the benefits that we have uh, through Christ, Lord, and in fulfillment of the of the covenant of grace that we study here, and uh, that that would be a true means of grace for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, so we are going to try to finish up some of the some of the study here on the covenant of grace, and we've looked at several things. Uh, we looked at who the parties of the covenant are, namely, who is it? You want to take a stab at it? Who are the parties involved in the covenant of grace? There's, I'll give you a clue, there's God and man, more, and, and he specifically, believers. believers, very nice, that's right, believers, and already, uh, in terms of our covenant theology, already we have departed from the Presbyterian model, right? Because they would say believers plus, uh, I'll just put kids, <laughs> right? So let's eliminate the kids. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Unless the kids are elect and believers themselves, right? Which they can be, you know, at, at, at very young ages. I mean, I mean, I've heard testimonies that say they've been, you know, Chuck Smith, you know, the founder of Calvary Chapel, claims he was saved at four years old in his crib, and that ever since then, he never ceased to have faith, never stopped having faith, and that was his testimony, it wasn't, you know, so God can save kids, um, but if they are saved, then they are going to be identified as such. Uh, There is a, the reason I put mediators, because there's a difference between, you remember the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, whereas in the covenant of works there is no mediator. God is dealing directly to, uh, to, uh, with man. But in the covenant of grace there is a mediator who is who? Who's the mediator of the covenant of grace? Christ. That's right. It is on the basis of his, uh, what they call, condign merit. It is, in other words, it is on the basis of his absolute perfect obedience uh, that he perfectly earns for us the benefits of this covenant. And there is a condition of the covenant of grace. What is that condition? Faith. That's right. I don't know who said that, but that's correct. The condition of the covenant of grace is faith, whereas the condition of the covenant of works was what? <coughs> works. So right away in Genesis chapters 1 and 3, or 1 to 3, or really 2 and 3, but you know what I mean, already the Bible has introduced the distinction between faith right, on, on the one hand, and works on the other, which we could say, in a sense, this is, this is the same sort of dichotomy between, well, I have it backwards, but you know what I mean, there's the gospel, in a sense, and then there's the law, the law and the gospel, distinction, I mean, already introduced in the pages of Genesis. On the one hand, God requires that we obey his law, on the other hand, the gospel provides everything that the law demands, uh, freely, by, by faith, through, by grace through faith. Uh, and so now we come to the promise of um, of the covenant. What is the promise of the covenant of grace? What what is God promising there in Genesis three fifteen? Anybody want to? What's that? Redemption. Redemption. Okay, that's right. 
Yeah, redeem to redeem a people, right? If you're obedient, then you'll live. In the covenant of grace? Uh, no. <laughs> you're right, because we have this distinction, right? Yeah, that's right. So the covenant of works was... Oh, so, well, yeah. You trust in God, mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So in one sense, we can say that, that, that what is promised in there is life, right? So it's eternal life, um, uh, right? And that's the operative word, I think, that I was looking for, Wally, was that even more than that, if we look at our little nifty uh, television screen up here, uh, I've written something down. It says, you know, God promises several things in the covenant of grace. Ultimately, however, what is promised is salvation and entrance into God's eternal kingdom, the kingdom of his son. Uh, so that that's what's going on in this original promise, is that if you meet the condition, which is to have faith in the promise of God, you will inherit eternal life. But that eternal life is not some ethereal existence, right? That eternal life is not some nebulous concept, Right, it, it it is a higher form of life, but ultimately that is in the kingdom of God. Because remember that when a person inherits eternal life, you are headed towards God's uh, everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of His Son. There is no other kingdom, and so that is what is promised in this uh, in this covenant. Does anybody have a question about that, or comment, or any insight, or anything that you want to share about that? Um, anything at all? No. So. So we can talk about the kingdom, right? And the kingdom is so important. Uh, what you find in Scripture is that for the remainder of the, of, the, of the Scriptures, for the remainder of the Bible, it is one, uh, in a sense, it is one uh, installment or it's one prefigure or it's one segment of the kingdom at a time. It's like, it's like more and more revelation. So what is the nature of revelation in Scripture? It is... It is unfolding, or it is another word for unfolding would be that it is progressive, right? Revelation is progressive. It is continually growing and getting bigger and bigger. In a sense, it's, it's, we're getting more and more revelation. Uh, and we talked about that, how if you go from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Genesis chapter 12, you have a thousand, peer, a thousand years of history that has already unfolded in the Bible, and just a quick, just a few chapters of the Bible, you already have a thousand years of history. Then when you arrive at chapter 12, it's like, you know, the spirit slows down, everything slows down, and we zoom in deep into the life of one man, which is Abraham, right? So Abraham becomes, in a sense, the model of all of this, right? So God gives us all of this and then exemplifies it in one man, namely Abraham, because what does it say about Abraham? He believed in the promises of God, and what? It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Abraham becomes the paradigm for every believer after that, right? The father of the faith, right? We are Abraham's descendants by faith, exactly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there are more things that are promised in this uh, covenant, in a sense, and I've written a few things down. So they are... Uh, let's see, what did I put? Uh, uh, there's enmity. There is the seed, which we talked about already a bit. And then there is, just to make it really easy, there's victory as well. There's a victory that's important. That's, you know, we got to talk about that. 
The very first thing, though, is the enmity. What is that enmity that we're talking about? We talked about a lot about this, by the way, the stuff that I'm skipping here. We talked about this quite a bit. We talked about the fact that God, God guarded the garden. He put a stationed a cherubim. He put a flaming sword, and he kind of, you know, he kind of, you know, threw everybody out of the garden. And the reason why is because man sought to be like God. Uh, look at this right here, right? The fall created a covenant perversion where man attempted to assume God's image by transgressing the original parameters that the image of God intended for them. They were to operate as God's vice regents, not as God's equals, right? Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, verse 22 of Genesis 3. This assumption, this assumption of knowledge was forbidden because it violated man's epistemic identity. They no longer sought to think God's thoughts after him, they sought knowledge through their own autonomy and expression of their atheism, since it would amount to the rejection of God's sovereignty over epistemology. That's just me having fun. But, but, but in other words, it's like, you know, they rejected God as the Lord of their mind. And what does God tell Israel? You should worship the Lord your God with all your mind, right? And the heart, soul, mind, strength, you know. But mind, and they rejected God as the Lord of their mind. Instead, they chose autonomy. They chose to think uh, on their own. And because of that, they obtained the knowledge of good and evil, but it was a perversion of the knowledge in good, uh, good and evil. See, God has knowledge of good and evil, doesn't he? Does that make God evil? No. So it must be that the way they went ar- about obtaining the knowledge of good and evil was the perversion. It was not that they were never to know. I mean, think about it. In heaven, here's a big, here's a question for you guys. In heaven, this is kind of deep. Don't ask me the answer either. <laughs> but just a question, thought-provoking. In heaven, will we have our Bibles? Yes. Word of God. <laughs> the word of the Lord endures forever, right? Of course we're going to have a Bible. I don't know if it would be this nice leather-bound, you know, I make nice leather cases for my, I don't know, but be glowing celestial Bible in my hand, right? Whatever it may be, there is no question we will have the Bible in our, you know, in our possession or in our heart, or we will have access to the Word of God in heaven. Question for you, does the Bible contain evil? Uh, not, not that it's evil, but does it contain or describe accounts and descriptive of evil? yes. Uh, incredible uh, graphic descriptions of evil, right? So in heaven, we will have access to the knowledge of good and evil, but it will not be evil for us to have it because our minds will be perfectly sanctified, perfectly brought under the obedience of Christ. It's amazing to think about, right? In other words, it must be that part of glorification means that our minds will be so renewed that evil will no longer have any sort of appeal to us whatsoever and that we can you know under god we will be able to uh we will be able to tolerate the knowledge of good and evil without transgressing into evil itself wow you see that's what i mean you know don't ask me any questions so i'm not looking over at chris's direction because i don't want to <laughs> yeah yeah go ahead good yeah is this also yeah could i Yeah, Second Corinthians ten five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Taking your thoughts captive to obey Christ, right? Yeah, that's right. And you know, Colossians two two and three. Obviously, you know that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him, right? Are in Christ. So, um, yeah. Repentance 
metanoia, the changing of the mind, uh -huh. does that in a sense to change our minds back to? Yeah, definitely. It's a renewal. Epistemology that starts with Sure, that. definitely. It's, uh, it's, it's part of the, you know, regeneration. One of the things that it does is it, it, it reverses the noetic effects of sin on the mind, right? Which just means the effects of sin on, on our minds that, uh, again, not perfect, right? We're not going to be glorified. We're always going to be in the presence of sin, and we will always battle sin in this age. But we definitely, according to, what is it, Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, that we are being renewed, renewed according to true knowledge, right? Uh, and, and what does it say? The holiness of the truth or something like that? Right? How does it say? That's, a, that's, an, important, that's an important phrase. I think it's Ephesians chapter 4. And yeah, yeah, it says, it's put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. Yeah, uh, that's verse 24, Ephesians 4, 24. That's a good one there because, you know, a lot of, a lot of theologians debate, like, what does it mean to be in the image of God? And especially, what does it mean to be renewed back into God's image? And they would say, well, that's why there's a, like a debate that it has a lot to do with epistemology. It has a lot to do with our mind. You know what I mean, and 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 knowledge and the, the holiness of the truth. You know what I mean, which is interesting because the truth is an abstract idea, right? It's not that you're regenerate and your tumors go away or something. You know what I mean? It's these are spiritual principles that God is operating upon the, the human when they are regenerate, and that's what He's conforming back to Him. It's amazing. But any other questions? How about this? Although they obtained a knowledge of good and evil, they were incapable of true knowledge, having drawn their own conclusions about good and evil. Uh, the strongest, the strongest principles of discernment and knowledge. I just put that out there because I think that's true. I just, I almost don't know how to explain it other than just say it, let people wrestle with it. Because man no longer knew God rightly, uh, they would have no ability to know themselves either. Since, as Calvin pointed out. Uh, a true knowledge of self comes only through a true knowledge of God. And then I read Calvin, he says, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing self or himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous, upright, wise, and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. That's a very famous quote, by the way. Uh, that's the way that Calvin opens the Institutes and really set the world on fire, you know, with that quote, but um, with that, especially that section of the Institutes. So anyway, but I wanted to get to uh, the enmity. Here we go. So, so the first thing, right, not just the promise of eternal life, that's right, but what is contained in that promise if we go to Genesis chapter 3, I suppose we can just go there. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And again, just the idea that um, God will inject enmity. So I put down that God put an end to the pact between the serpent and the woman. Their covenant perversion ended in judgment. And that is very gracious of God, if you think about it, for him to do that. What began by the indulgence of the forbidden fruit ended in the enmity of the two who began the Antichrist covenant. 
This is me just kind of having fun too. But, you know, this Antichrist covenant, the original abomination of desolation, where the serpent declared himself the Lord of a counterfeit covenant with man, while the serpent promised blessing, indeed a kingdom of his own, God's day of judgment proved too powerful for the Antichrist kingdom. And what I put down is that that's a redemptive historical prelude to things to come in the final parousia. What's the word parousia? All you Greek scholars. The second coming is a reference to the second coming of Christ, right? And so, you know, the first parousia, uh, some would say that that's Genesis chapter 3, you know, beginning of verse 8, when God is coming, you know, in the, the spirit of the day, they hear the sound of the Lord, they hide themselves. That's like a terrifying judgment advent, you know, that God is coming in a, a chariot of judgment, you know. Um, yeah. Any other questions about that? Anything? Feel free to interrupt at any time. But I put down there, the proliferation of this counterfeit covenant is gracious. Satan would prove to be too tyrannical of an overlord, a cruel taskmaster, a god of evil, too diabolical to ever be true. What does 2 Corinthians 4, 4 say? Right? It says the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they would not see the, the truth, right? The knowledge, the glory of Christ, and all of that. God ends the pact with the woman and the serpent by replacing a false... Amity, what's, what's amity? Amity is friendship. So he replaces false friendship with enmity, right? Hostility. Uh, that's remarkable. And then we see this hostility in two ways. Number one, we see the hostility on the level of the, the seed of the woman, plural, uh, the community of believers that she will produce, right? By virtue of the seed singular, the singular messianic seed that she will produce so it's like on one level we have the enmity that is typologically symbolized you can see it up there jew and gentile that enmity that existed there but that was only at a typological level meaning that what israel did in its life and the hostility that it faced against the canaanites the amalekites the Philistines, right? All of its enemies, that hostility that sent, has seemed to never end, right? That was only a typological, it was a picture of the true hostility of the people of God. That is, you know, as we war against not the Amalekites or the Philistines, but we war against the kingdom of darkness. So it ultimately, it's like a conflict of two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. And that's exactly what the New Testament teaches. See? Um, that's what be, that's what's behind Jesus' words in John 15, where he teaches the church that the world will hate you. <laughs> Why will the world hate you? Because it hated me. Why does the world hate him? Because God put enmity between her seed and his seed. Right? Any questions about that? Anything? No. Are we moving too quick? I don't think so. You guys are getting everything, right? <laughs> Okay, what about not just the enmity, but now the seed? Let's look at that a little bit closer. In terms of what is promised here, you know, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Um, obviously, this is a messianic uh, theology. Um, this is ultimately, you know, seen in Messiah more than anyone. He is the, the second Adam, and it's his conflict with the serpent that we are concerned with. Right? As the last Adam 
um, he succeeds where the first one fails. He triumphs over the serpent at his birth, Matthew 2, during his temptation, Matthew 4, during his ministry, Matthew 12. And I think that Matthew 12 passage, somebody look it up for me, 1225. I, I think that's in reference to his ability to cast out demons. But, and, then, and, and then ultimately at the cross, right? And then we will see that, that triumph over the serpent at the consummation, right? Um, you got that? Yeah. Um, uh, 1225? 1225 speaks about if a kingdom is divided against itself. 1228, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. Look at what Jesus is doing there, right? So in his earthly ministry, what he's was he showing us is that while Jesus was in Galilee, and if you go to Israel with us, you're going to be walking in Galilee, you know, feeling really cool, you know, it's really old school, you know, really, really antique, you know, whatever. It's going to be great. But anyway, you're going to see, matter of fact, we'll be in Capernaum and we'll take a little trail down where he encountered the demoniac in the cave that kept cutting himself and stuff. You will, you'll be right there where that happened. You know, it's amazing. So, so what he's saying is that this is not just, you know, Jesus doing a lot of weird stuff, you know. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of demonically possessed people. I have. It's very, very odd, you know, to say the least. I mean, it's, it's, it's really crazy. Has anybody seen, I mean, claim? Yeah. Would you make a claim? I'm on record. I mean, this is on, right? I'm on record saying I've seen demon possession. I think I have legitimate demon possession maybe once or twice in my life. Um, yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. My, why Africa? Uh, yeah, mine was mine was in the bush. Yeah. Deliverance. Deliverance ministry. Yeah, the pastors in Uganda they told me they're just like yeah, this happens all the time around here. I mean, it's just it's just voodoo's everywhere and witch doctors are everywhere and yeah. the occult is everywhere and people are just you know demon possessions everywhere. It's like, wow, it's amazing. So when Jesus is casting out demons, he's making a statement that he has power over the serpent, right? And that's why he talks about that. And that's why he talks about binding the strong man, right? And plundering his house. That's amazing. His entire mission, uh, what about 1 John 3, 8? His entire mission, the, the, the mission of the seed to triumph over the serpent Really, Jesus' entire mission was for the purpose of defeating the devil. First John three eight. Look at that verse, right? What an incredible verse! Because what does it say? Somebody read that. Yeah, he appeared for this purpose. Wow. He appeared for the purpose of someone finally defeating the devil. <laughs> you know. Uh, well, where does that go back to? Well, we know. It goes back to the covenant of grace and what was promised there. The messianic seed is, in fact, a new covenant representative. He is both mediator and federal head of a new humanity. Uh, the perpetuity of the covenant of grace is seen in its many subsequent covenant arrangements where a similar seed theology appears. First, this is seen in the covenant with Abraham. Where really, I mean, you can talk about Noah as well, but I wanted to talk about, you know, explicitly talking about descendants. Look at this, Genesis chapter 17, uh, verse 6. I've made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. 
Wow, what an incredible promise. All the way back then, Abraham is being given a kingdom promise. See that there? What's that? Before Isaac, before, before any of that. Yeah, he's already, in a sense, God is already sort of saying that a kingdom is going to arise out of, you know, Abraham. It's just amazing. He says, um, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. So it's, it's almost like, how is it everlasting, right? Because not all the descendants of Abraham were saved, right? Some of them perished. So how could it be that he made an everlasting covenant with all of his descendants? You know, so, so I don't know. It's just, you know, those are hard passages. But I guess to me, whenever I encounter a hard truth like that, I, I think the key is always Christ and the seed and the true seed and true salvation. So it must be that what's going on right here in Genesis chapter 17, like many other passages in Genesis, is that there's two levels, Right. There's, there's two levels to the kingdom. There's the typological, the typical, right? That's a why. And then there is the, sure, sure, the spiritual. That's a spiritual. <laughs> yeah, so the two levels here, right? On one hand, everyone, the whole community, the whole community, all descendants, Right? All descendants have access to the typical level of the kingdom of God. But at the spiritual level, it's only believers, right? It's only believers. Well, my hand, either my hand's not working. I've been, I've been uh, you guys know I work with dogs, right? I've been rehabilitating this aggressive pit bull and uh, really aggressive, which is, I think, the first really, really aggressive pit that I've worked with. But, man, she's strong. She's really strong. And so I've been... Just working with the leash has been like, I mean, I'm hanging this dog. It's just, you know, just like a crocodile, you know what I mean? She hasn't gotten me yet. She tried one time. She tried, no, she's tried a couple times to get me. She just, if she hears a dog bark, she, this dog is so funny. It just winds itself up and it squeals like a pig. <laughs> I'm just like, what are you doing? But it winds itself up. Until it starts literally growling, snarling, and like a crocodile. Yeah, it's a demoniac. All I could do is just hang him. Just hang it like this until it stops, you know. And then it settles down, and we start walking. And I see that wasn't so bad. Just trust me, you know. <laughs> you guys should see this. You guys should come with me on that one. That's a bad one. Really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, how about this? It's also seen not just in Abraham, but it's also seen in David, right? Another seed, another seed promise, but this time it's more more mature, right? There are other, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's just like, this is the problem with this, right? Look at my document here. Look at my document, 144 pages. I mean, where do I stop? <laughs> Landon, where do I stop? <laughs> I just go on and on talking about the seed theology. I mean, you could write a book just on that, you know what I mean? So I'm trying to kind of hit the highlights, you know. We have, turn there, Second Samuel chapter 7, to see this gracious promise to another seed. Um, yeah. Let me just read it. The Davidic covenant, uh, as the nation takes its formal kingdom shape in fulfillment of God's kingdom promise to Abraham. Isn't that amazing? So that promise that we just read in Genesis 17, 6, is also then 
picked up again and furthered, advanced, whatever you want to call it, more and crystallized as we arrive at David, who becomes, you know, the seed, the preeminent seed that we want to follow in redemptive history. Now, therefore, he says, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And as I'm reading this, I mean, you just think Christologically, right? This is so remarkable. You just think of the analogy to Christ here in every, at every state. You know, David was a shepherd. Christ is a shepherd. He's the good shepherd. You know, David is a ruler over God's people, Israel. Jesus is the ruler over true Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Wow, look at that, right? So God's, uh, God's decree to exalt his king, right, over his enemies. Where do we see that? What verse does that remind you of recently preached? God taking his king. Psalm 2. That's right, Psalm 2. That's right, what verse? <laughs> Psalm 2, verse 7, especially, but 6 and 7, where he says, you know, I've installed my king upon Zion, right? And then, um, and then he says, you know, for, he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, that language right there in Psalm 2 is directly connected to this promise in 2 Samuel of uh, the Davidic kingdom. And, uh, and that's ultimately picked up, picked up again and again by the New Testament authors directly applying to Christ. It's remarkable. So we're supposed to take 2 Samuel, Psalm chapter 2, and many other Davidic passages, and now they, they no longer refer to the earthly David. I mean, they, they really ultimately truly refer only to Christ now. Um, not that we can't say, well, the original promise was to David. Well, sure, that's just to help us to understand the historical background. But that historical background is not the main point. Isn't that remarkable? Um, so anyway, uh, he says, uh, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And that's interesting, too, because now we have the element of the temple, building a temple for David the king. What well, was that a picture of? The church, ultimately, I mean, you just got right to it. You know what I mean? I think so. Um, and he says, when your days are complete and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up uh, your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, talking about Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. What's interesting here is that this verse, verse 14, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. That is referred to, or that is referenced to Christ. But guess what's not referenced to Christ in the New Testament? The last part of the verse, when he commits iniquity. That's not connected to Christ because Christ never committed iniquity. <laughs> that remarkable? But, bec- but to show us that this, even this covenant right here is a covenant of grace. He even goes on to say that I will correct him. He won't kill him. He won't judge him forever, but he'll correct him. My loving kindness will not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance to all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Yes, sir. Right in the middle of the verse, you say, 
nope, that's not for him, but then the first part of it is. Right. How do you respond to an objection like that? Well, because the New Testament doesn't quote it. It quotes the first part of the verse, but not the second part of the verse, which I think is curious. And I guess yeah. in, to that degree, the original language didn't, or the original writings wouldn't have verses, so they wouldn't be able to pick it apart like that in that sense anyways. Oh, sure. To say that, oh, that verse, yeah. you know, doesn't yeah. exist in mm-hmm. the original text. Yeah, exactly. So that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So as we're running out of time, of course, um, we talk about this, the enmity, we talk about the seed, and that seed is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. I think we see that. But we have one last thing, which is the victory, right? The victory of the seed, and that's what's ultimately being said here when it says, you know, um, he, you will bruise him on, he, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on a heel. Isn't that remarkable? That, uh, let me just fast forward because we're not going to get to this. I'm going to pretend to know where I just left and come back to it, but this is just stuff I wrote down. Here we go. The the covenant of grace sets forth Christ in the following ways. It promises a redeemer. It presents the need for a new and better Adam. It sets forth the prospect of returning to paradise, establishing the principle of faith in the redeemer. It exalts Christ above the serpent. It depicts the dual estates of Christ. That's what I want to put. It it depicts the dual estates of Christ because notice that the victory comes at a cost. Yes, the serpent's head is crushed, but it is crushed at a cost, at the bruising of the heel of the seed, which is just, you know, uh, it's just sort of uh, emblematic. It's it's like a symbol or it's just a, a token of some sort of wounding, a significant wound through which this will be accomplished which we ultimately know. So here's the deal, where it says, you shall bruise him on the heel, that's the cross. Right? What else is it? So think about that. So, so you know, talk about people that don't have a redemptive historical hermeneutic, then, you know, I think maybe I'll use that next time as leverage to say, you tell me, that because grammatical, historical interpretation, literal interpretation, how do you get to the, the heel, that the bruising there on the heel is a reference to the crucifixion? Yes or no? And if, if no, then, then how do you deny all the New Testament, you know, the New Testament application of this? And if yes, the word cross is not in there, crucifixion is not in there, Christ is not in there, how did you get there? You know what I mean? You can only get there through redemptive historical hermeneutics, you know. Any questions about that? I mean, that's that's like a lot of stuff. I think uh, that was interesting uh, from Genesis 3.15 is that um, the serpent's head is his sign of his authority is crowned. Yeah. And the Redeemer is only bruised on the heel. Right. And he's, in essence, he's getting the victory over. Right. One is a... One is a truly fatal blow. The other one is like a temporary blow. You know what I mean? That proves not to be fatal. Yeah. I guess I would ask, does it have to apply to Christ uh, in the physical sense? Or could it apply to Christ in the spiritual sense in that the heel could be the persecution of his body, that being the church? Because I think of Romans 16, where it also talks about crushing Satan, mm-hmm. and I also think about Saul at the time when he says, who am I persecuting? Mm-hmm. Jesus said, you're persecuting me. And That's right. Physically persecuting. That's right. But it was in a, 
Sure. Yeah. So the identity of the plural seed with the singular seed. Mm-hmm. I think that's done already when he just the general when he says between you uh, between you and the woman, mm-hmm. right? Between your seed and her seed. So there it's general enough and most commentators would agree that that is talking about her descendants, right? Ultimately, we would say especially her righteous descendants, the you know, the descendants, the elect descendants. And but by the time you get to 15b, the second part of the it's it's very specific. So here it's dealing with a direct conflict between the serpent and Christ. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So but but just, you know, like what is the covenant of grace giving us in theology? Well, all of this, it depicts the dual estates of Christ. It magnifies the need for our union with Christ because the only way to profit from his victory is to be in him, right? To be one with him. It shows us how Christ fulfills God's promises. Wow, look at that. Any redemptive promise of God is only fulfilled in Christ, or we could say ultimately. It shows us how, uh, let me see, it anticipates the total vindication of Christ and his people. Because, you know, if we, what is, what is, what is scripture, what does Paul say? If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him, or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Um, and it also typifies the atonement, it typifies propitiation and imputation. Um, so anyway, we'll go back, but I just wanted to rattle off those um I was supposed to find where I was. Oh, yeah. Back to the victory part. This is so much fun. My hand's like ready to fall off, but I love typing all this stuff. Look at this uh, quote here by Meredith Klein. We'll spend the remainder of our time looking at this quote by Dr. Klein. Uh, Yeah, it goes on to there. It's an amazing quote. It really sums up. uh, Let's see, what do I wrote? So it gives us a fuller picture. Um, of what's being set forth in the covenant of grace, the ultimate triumph of the seeds, new covenant community. Indeed, just as Genesis text uh, stipulates, Klein points out that through the bruising of Messiah's heel, the new covenant itself would be ratified. Wow, think about that. So in the bruising of the heel of the seed, by that bruising, the new covenant is actually ratified, right? So how will the new covenant be established? By the bruising of the heel of the seed, right? Through the suffering, that's why Jesus says, this is my blood, right, of the new covenant, right? This is my body broken for you, right? It is through that suffering that the new covenant is established, right? Yes, sir? Absolutely. That's right. And his death. That's right. Even as Romans says, right? Romans chapter 9, where it talks about the death of the one, right? That a death is necessary for making a covenant mm-hmm. or a will and testament, either way. Right. Yeah. And, and no, yeah. I, think, I, think that's, I think that's right. You see that, you see that same thing, that, that, that the, the reversing all happened at the death of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ, all in that moment. Where even in like Hebrews two fourteen, since then, since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, um, likewise, also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Mm, that is the devil. That's right. Very good. I'm trying to get that in there so you guys can read it a little bit better. 
All right, let's see here. He says, The coming of the federal head, the Son of Man, whose origins were in heaven, would undergo probation in another covenant of works. Uh, so that's talking about the fact that when Jesus came, and he was kind of like the second Adam, another probation, under a different covenant of works, which was ultimately what? What, what works, what covenant is Jesus obeying? The Mosaic covenant, but ultimately, what else? See, because he says here, the covenant which he made with his father before he left heaven, the covenant of redemption, which is stands back of the covenant, of the old covenant. So, so the covenant of redemption saying Christ has to obey, he has to do all these works in order for redemption to be accomplished, right? And then those works are historically, in a sense, embodied in the old covenant, That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something deeper. In other words, that's exactly right, Chris, because there's something deeper about what Christ is saying there than just, I obeyed the Ten Commandments or I obeyed the law of Moses. It's more than that. It's everything the Father, before he left heaven, had ordered him to do in order to accomplish redemption. It's just, it's just magnificent. You know, some people think this is crazy. Like, how did I get stuck in here? Other people are like, this is great. You know, I'm one of the, you know, it's just great. Um, the covenantal commitments made in eternity uh, between the Trinity must be fulfilled on earth in historical time. I love that. Uh, in the, I'm trying to get this in the center. I need Chris Bess up here to like work my computer and do it right. There we go. In the world of the generations of Adam and the woman and the woman, uh, and the woman, the second Adam. What is that wrong? In the world of the generations of Adam and the woman. Oh, the second Adam, as the representative of God's elect, must gain the reward of the covenanted kingdom. Wow, there we go. For himself and for them, as had been decreed in Genesis 3.15. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's why I quoted him. Mm-hmm. By his obedience in the earthly probation phase of his eternal covenant of works, the champion of the woman's seed would open the way to the covenant of grace, whose proper purpose is to bring salvation to the rest of the woman's seed and to bestow on them. Um, I knew I wouldn't mess that up. Did I really just do that? Did it go all the way to there? Why? That's it. I'm switching. I'm s- that's it, man. I'm, I don't want to give Chris any fuel, but come on, Mac. Yeah, tell me about it. Here we are. It's not we're not all is lost. Here we go. Uh huh. I know. I know. That's right. So let's see if I can make this big again, so we can. There, it gets better. Uh, it gets actually better from here on out. This quote. It's really good. He says, um, "The ultimate purpose is to bring salvation to the rest of the woman's seed, and to bestow on them the kingdom of the glory spirit, which the glory spirit." If you don't know, the glory spirit, that hyphenated word, is Meredith Klein's like code word for how do I wrap how do I how do I describe the glory spirit? What he's meaning there is is basically heaven. Okay. It's basically heaven, but the way that Meredith Klein likes to talk about it as the glory spirit is because what he's saying is that heaven is the sphere of the spirit predominantly. That that yeah. Yeah. He, he even says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, Adam became 
No, no, no. So what did he say? Adam, Adam became a living being. God breathed into him. Remember? It says Adam became a living being. What he's saying is that that's like typological. That's like an earthly projection of the heavenly reality. And what God is projecting by breathing into the human, the ruach of God, is what he's saying is that that is a projection of the fact that in heaven, the atmosphere, if you would, that we breathe is the glory spirit, which is the mystery of eternal life. I'm like, I'm glad you went there. I won't go there. But I am so, like, thrilled that you went there. (laughs) Because that's an amazing thought. That in a sense, maybe I should pause this. But what gives us eternal life, perpetual life in heaven, is that we are breathing God's spirit. (laughs) It's kind of like, what? Are you sure about that? (laughs) I'm like, no, I'm not. That's what Klein says. But I think that's just remarkable. What he's saying is that when, when God breathed the Ruach into Adam, that was just a picture of how man lives eternally with God, is that he's breathing eternal air, if you would, right? Which is the glory spirit of God. Wow, I just... Okay, maybe. Um, But it's eternal life. Let's leave it at that. So we are bestowed with the glory spirit, the heavenly state, by their messianic kinsman redeemer. Indeed, in the suffering, the bruising of his heel, the messianic seed will ratify the new covenant. Wow. Isn't that remarkable? We are so out of time. But you see, and that's why I quoted this. Let's, how about reread this and that's it. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that's the old covenant, Moses, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So, so what covenant theology wants to say is this. What covenant theologians are saying is that that eternal inheritance is organically the same as what is promised in Genesis chapter 3. Essentially, it's the same salvation. There's one salvation, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. That's it. So what we're seeing by the time we get to Hebrews is we're just seeing the full flower, right, of the seed of Genesis 3.15. That's all we're seeing. So Genesis 3.15 was the seed that was thrown into the ground. By the time we get to Hebrews chapter 9, what we're seeing is the full blossom of that promise that was given here, which is the promise of inherit of the eternal inheritance. So, yeah. Yeah. I wrote down somewhere, and I don't think I am ever going to get to it. Where did I write that down? Oh, I wanted to get to this part because I thought it was really good, but, oh, man. Let's see here. Okay, I'll do this. Let's see here. New. I can't. Is that spelled wrong? Jerusalem. Here we go. There it is right there. Oh, yes, of course. That's what I wanted. 
<clears throat> so when we're talking about the like what he's giving us, this eternal inheritance, this is what I wrote. Watch this. He's bas- I'm basically saying that the tree of life, which is a symbol of our inheriting the eternal inheritance, because that's what Revelation is saying, right? The tree of life, which w- was meant to uh, typify the eternal city of God, the New Jerusalem. So all the way back in Genesis chapter th- 2 and 3, the tree of life was a token of eternal life, but it was also a token of living in the city of God, the New Jerusalem. It's almost like the tree of life is the, f- it's like the first sort of image that we get or, s- or sort of like a, a reflection of the heavenly New Jerusalem, which guess what? Because in the New Jerusalem is where the tree of life is now. So am I crazy? Maybe, but let's pray and go to, pr- go to service. But I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's there. You know, I hope you guys have questions that you write down, even disagreements, things that maybe you're you're still thinking through. I really, I welcome any kind of feedback, even if you don't fully agree with some of this stuff. I, I welcome any feedback whatsoever, questions or thoughts or other insights. I can't tell you how many of you guys have come up to me and given me all kinds of insights into this stuff. Just in fellowship, but uh, it's great. So let's pray and we'll go. Well, Father, again, we thank you so much uh, for your word. We thank you for this glorious promise, Lord, that as simple as it is, it's just one verse, as simple as it is, it's remarkable that theologian after theologian and and, uh, book after book has been written to try to unearth all of the riches that was contained in that initial covenant promise that you made about our savior and his triumph over the serpent lord and we thank you that by faith we have an interest in what he has done and so remind us of that lord that that truly is the good news that we live for in jesus name we pray amen